The following Bible lesson and other Bible information can be found on the official Dean Bible Ministries website. That's found at www.deanbible.org. That's www.deanbible.org. Dr. Dean is the pastor of West Houston Bible Church. And now, here's Dr. Dean with the Bible lesson. Father, we thank you for your word, for the Holy Spirit, these two power options in our lives as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ that enable us to know you, that enable us to learn how to live in such a way that our lives are aligned with reality through uh, understanding grace and understanding doctrine so that we can pursue spiritual maturity that we have understood that our salvation is based in faith alone, in Christ alone, and on that basis we have an eternal relationship with you and you have saved us for a purpose, and that is to pursue spiritual maturity so that we can glorify you. And now as we take in your word, we understand that your word is the only way by which we can grow, and therefore we give it the highest priority in our life. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles with me this morning to Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Now, one of these days I'm going to get to where I'm can actually have room up here for my Bible and notes and overheads, somehow get some kind of organized system operating up here. Okay, Galatians chapter 1. We have looked at the first uh, ten verses. Let's review those for just a minute so we have some appreciation of where we're going. Remember, every verse has a context. A verse without a context is a pretext. That's a basic rule of hermeneutics. And often what you find, especially among the cults, is that verses are yanked out of their context and their focus is on, on this one particular verse without relating it to the sentence it may be a part of or the paragraph of which it's a part of or that section of the epistle it's a part of or, or the broader epistle or New Testament th- theology or the context of the Bible. So every verse has a, has a number of different contexts within which it must be interpreted. So we constantly go back and forth between looking at the details of the verse, which is called analysis, and synthesis, which is relating it to the whole. So if we get, go back and review our outline here, we have an introduction in the first uh, ten verses of Galatians. This is divided into two parts. There's the opening salutation in verses 1 through 5. This is one of the uh, more brief salutations, one of the briefer salutations in the New Testament, begins Paul, an apostle, not, and, and your New American Standard has sent in italics, and I want you to notice that whenever there's a word in your Bible that's in italics in your English translation, that means that word is not in the original, and it has just been supplied by the translator to make some sense of the verse in English, and sometimes they add these words in italics that really represent a bad translation or a bad interpretation. Paul is an apostle not from the source. He got his apostleship not from the source of mankind. 
nor through the agency of a particular man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him up from the dead. This is the first idea in the salutation, and that is a theme that will develop this morning, and that is Paul's apostolic authority. This is a major issue in Galatians because after Paul went to these churches and established them, taught them the gospel, he was followed by a group of men who are called Judaizers who said, no, 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 Paul's not really an, an apostle. He's not really related to the people in Jerusalem. He's, he didn't get in his authority from Peter or James or John. He's just out here on his own, so he's not really teaching the truth. He's just teaching this grace gospel because that pleases men. People like that because then they don't have to do anything, and that's just contrary to what the Old Testament says. You have to come under the law if you really want to be saved. The men have to be circumcised, and if you don't do all of that, then you're never going to see heaven. So they came along behind him, and they criticized his apostolic authority and ran him down. Remember, that's always a technique. Uh, whenever you want to destroy somebody or is begin by assassinating their, their character or by destroying their position of authority. So that's the first theme that's mentioned in the salutation. And the second theme that's mentioned in the salutation, we find in verse 4 and 5, referring to the Lord Jesus Christ at the end of verse 3, who gave himself for our sins, gave himself as a substitute for our sins, that he might deliver us out of this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. So the point here is that is the gospel. That's the basis for salvation is Jesus Christ's finished work on the cross, which is the basis for our justification. And our justification by faith alone is the basis for our sanctification. They're two different subjects. Do not confuse justification with sanctification. But because you are justified, the result of that that Paul is going to get to in the fifth chapter is because of our position in Christ, we have true Christian liberty. And that is a freedom not to do whatever we want to, but a freedom to pursue spiritual maturity and a freedom from the bondage of the sin nature which you have as an unbeliever. There is no option for the unbeliever except to operate on his sin nature. As a believer, you are set free from the uh, penalty of sin at the moment of salvation. That's justification. And then the whole process of sanctification in phase two is to be set free from the power of sin on a day-to-day basis. And that comes from the two power options. That noise is awfully loud over there. Is that distracting you back there, Ken? you hear okay? All right. It's bothering me. I'm really hearing it this morning for some reason. That Jesus Christ gave himself to set us free from what? From the influence of the sin nature so that we might live a life that glorifies God by pursuing spiritual maturity. So this is a salutation and it emphasizes the two, the basic concepts that are going to be uh, developed within the book. Being sanctified or delivered, freed from the power of the sin nature, apostolic authority, justification, and sanctification. And then the second part of the salutation, in verses 6 through 10, Paul expresses his amazement at how quickly the Galatian believers have departed from the truth of the gospel. And the way he constructs this is, is uh, very harsh. Uh, it is a verbal slap in the face. I mean, for those people who think that ministers have to be so sweet and kind and always, uh, you know, tr- say things in such a way that it gets people's approval and blessing, I mean, this just teaches just the opposite. Paul just nails them. And then his concluding thought 
in verse 10 is, For am I now seeking the favor of man or of God? Would I speak to you this way if I were seeking your approval? Absolutely not. I'm not concerned about whether you like me. My personality is not the issue. How I address you is not the issue. The issue is the truth of the gospel. And the gospel is very, very clear. It is faith alone in Christ alone. Faith plus anything equals nothing. If you want to destroy faith, then add works to it. Faith plus baptism, faith plus good works, faith plus joining a church, faith plus lordship, faith plus anything is no salvation whatsoever. If you, were, you think you were saved because you believed in Christ and were baptized, if you think you were saved because you were believed in Christ and walked an aisle, if you think you were saved because you believed in Christ and, and committed yourself to His Lordship, then you weren't saved at that point because that is a false gospel and that will not save you. And Paul makes this clear that anybody who does this should be anathema or a curse. It's a very strong statement. And basically what he's saying is, may these people just rot in hell because they're preaching a message of damnation that if people believe that, they will never see heaven. This is very, very important. We need to have an eternal perspective on people, especially when it comes to witnessing that these people are bound for the lake of fire and eternal condemnation. And one of the reasons that we as believers are placed within their sphere of life is for us to make the gospel clear to them. That's our role as believers, part of our position, as we shall see in the second hour, of our role as ambassadors for Jesus Christ. Now we come, after reviewing the introduction, Paul comes back to this main theme of his apostolic authority in verse 11, and we get into the first major section of the epistle, which runs from 1.11 down to 2.21. In this chapter, he is going to defend, through the rest of this chapter and all of chapter 2, he will defend his apostolic authority. And the first thing he does in 1.11 and 12 is that he sets forth a proposition. And that, is, and that is the proposition that he will defend in the remainder of this section, and that is that he received the gospel directly from God and not from men. And therefore, it is the truth. And he establishes that through several lines of argumentation. So this is a proposition set forth in 1.11. He starts off with the Greek word norizo. G-N-O-R-I-Z-O. It's from the... I'm writing in Greek. It's from the basic Greek root that's the same as gnosis or, or uh, epinosis, gnosko. Norizo mean, has to do with knowledge. And, the, and it has to, its basic meanings are to reveal, to declare, to make known, and to inform. The best meaning is, I make known to you or I declare to you. He's declaring a proposition. The first word in the sentence, and in Greek it always comes second, but the first word is for. This is the Greek word gar, G-A-R, which indicates an explanation. Sometimes it has almost the sense of because. It's an explanation. What is he explaining? Not his outburst here at the end in verse 10, but the entire uh, thought of verses 6 through 10 of why the gospel is so important. So now he's going to establish that by means of relating it 
to his own apostolic authority. He says, for or because, this is so important, because I make known to you, norizo is a present active indicative. The sense of the present tense here is an instantaneous present which describes an action completed at the moment of speaking. It's an instantaneous present that describes an action completed at the moment of speaking. So right now, Paul, as Paul writes them, he says, I am making this known to you right now. I'm setting this principle down in writing right now. It indicates a formal or solemn assertion. This is a te- sort of a technical use of norizo. And he's introducing a formal proposition which will be supported by the evidence in the next rest of the chapter in the next chapter. For I make this principle known to you right now, brethren. And the use of the word uh, adolfoi, brethren, the plural of adolfos for brother, indicates that he addresses the Galatian as fellow believers. I would have you as a dative of advantage of you. It is for your advantage that I make this principle known to you, brothers. What's the principle? Well, you have the phrase that, that the gospel was preached by me is not according to man. Now, this word that's translated that in English is the Greek word hati. has a rough breathing mark, so it's H-O-T-I. Now, hati has several different nuances, one of which is it, in, it introduces either a... They don't have quotation marks. You know, in English, we'll set something off with quotation marks. And you don't have quotation marks in Greek. So the way they introduce a direct quotation is just through this word, hati. And in those senses, it really should not be translated. It can also introduce an indirect quotation. And it also has another nuance which would remain untranslated. And I would just put a colon here. I make this known to you. Colon. Now we're going to have the principle. Scratch out to that. It shouldn't be translated. I would make this principle known to you, brethren. Colon. The gospel which was preached by me, is not according to man. Okay, that's the proposition Paul is going to defend. The gospel which is preached by me is not according to men. So Paul is going to take a lot of time to lay out the doctrine of his apostolic authority. So let's take a few minutes to look at the doctrine of authority orientation. The Doctrine of Authority Orientation. This is one of the most important principles you can have in your life. That is to be oriented to authority. Principle number one. What is authority orientation? It is recognizing that in every sphere of life, God has established specific authorities. Recognizing that in every sphere of life, God has established specific authorities. Respecting those authorities, and secondly, respecting those authorities primarily because of the position or office that that person holds not necessarily because of the personal actions of that individual, because of their personal integrity or lack of it, or their personal character. The issue is not who the person is or what their character is like, but the office or position that they hold. 
there are all sorts of positions in life that have, they come with inherent authority. The position of a king or president, the position of an employer, a supervisor, a manager, a husband, a father, a parent. All of these are positions that come with inherent authority. And even if the person in that position may be doing something wrong, their character may not uh, come up to the level that's expected of the person in that office, authority orientation means that you respect the person, the, the office and the authority of the office and submit to the authority of the office even if the person who is holding that office is unworthy of it at that particular time. Because to do otherwise means that you're setting yourself up as the final judge and arbiter and authority in every situation, and that is nothing more than pure arrogance. And so if you don't understand this principle and live it out in your life, then I can guarantee you that you will have major problems and, and failures in your life. Authority orientation is recognizing that in every sphere of life, God has established specific authorities. Respecting those authorities primarily because of the office or position they hold, not necessarily because of who they are or what their character is like. Secondly, I'm going to throw a good 50 cent word at you this morning. You always have to have your vocabulary expanded a little bit. It's good for the development of your brain and most of us are getting a little older and we don't need our brains to rust. Authority is an ontological reality related to the essence of God, not a created reality. Now, this is a very important word that I'm going to use several times. I'm going to write it on the board for you. Ontological. It comes from a basic Greek word which has to do with the essential being or essence of a thing or a person. Relates to, for example, one of the arguments for the existence of God is the ontological argument for the existence of God. That's a very difficult, complicated argument that basically says uh, that then which nothing greater can exist must have real existence because otherwise that uh, which existed, which had existence, would be greater. And it's a very complicated argument. We won't get sidetracked by getting into that this morning. But the word ontological has to do with the basic being or essence of a thing. Now, authority is an... What I mean by this, let's break it apart so you can understand it. Authority is an ontological reality related to the essence of God, not a created reality. Now, if you want to really understand that, perhaps, not get confused, you could take the word ontological out of it and just say authority is a reality related to the essence of God not a created reality. Let's review the doctrine of the Trinity. We've been studying that in the second hour in relationship to the first uh, five verses in the Gospel of John. Here's the diagram of the Trinity. Definition of the Trinity is that God is one in essence, yet exists as three in person. He exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. These are three distinct persons yet they are one in essence. When we talk about the essence of God, we say that God is sovereign. He is perfect righteousness, so we use a plus. Perfect righteousness. He is absolute justice. He is immeasurable love. He is eternal life. He is omnipotent. He is omniscient. He is omnipresent. He is immutable, which means that God can never change. 
He is always faithful. He always has been one way and always will be that same way. And He is veracity. He is absolute truth. This is the essence of God. This is who God is in His essential being. This is the ontological reality of God. This one essence is shared equally and fully by each member of the Trinity. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They are therefore co-equal. They are co-equal, they are co-eternal, and they are co-infinite. There never was a time when they did not exist in this way. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Now, what, how does this relate to authority? Well, within the Trinity itself, there is an authority structure. So, authority, a lot of people get the idea that authority is something that God instituted in order to keep His creatures under control. That authority was something God established because of sin. But what what I'm showing you here is that the whole concept of authority relationships is integral to the basic essence. It's an ontological reality in the nature of God. That means that it is ultimate reality. Just as we've seen in John 1, 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word that's translated Word in the Greek is logos, which has to do with reason, logic, knowledge, thought. That's part of the essential reality of God, that when you talk about the essential reality of God, part of it is an authority structure within the Godhead. But this is not an authority structure that violates their equality. They are co-equal. They have the same identical essence. God the Father is not superior in His essence to God the Son. God the Son is not superior in His essence to God the Holy Spirit. They all partake of the same identical essence. One is not superior to the other. Yet there is an authority structure within the, the very nature of the Trinity itself. So authority is inherent to the roles. Role distinction has nothing to do with equality. Role distinction is even is inherent to the very nature of God. So therefore, if authority structure and role distinction is inherent to God who is the basic reality of the universe, then there is then understanding and operating on the basis of authority structure and role distinctions within human relationships has nothing to do with the subject of equality, but has everything to do with orientation to reality and orientation to life. So that if you do not understand authority distinctions and role distinctions, and you try to merge them and say that all roles are interchangeable, that if there are role distinctions, for example, that to say that that women have one role and men have another role, and that women are created with a feminine soul, men are created with a masculine soul, and therefore they are inherently distinct and have different roles within life, that does not mean that they're not equal in terms of their humanity or equal before God. That's why you can say that there are roles of submission to authority within life that do not violate people's equality. Authority has nothing to do with equality. 
If authority had anything to do with equality, it would violate the very understanding, basic understanding of reality and the doctrine of the Trinity, and Jesus could not be equal to God. The Father sent the Son. The Son said, I can do nothing unless the Father allows me to. I can do nothing. Jesus Christ demonstrated perfect authority orientation. Within the, within the structure of the Trinity, you have clear role distinctions. For example, in relation to creation, the Father planned it, the Son executed it, and the Holy Spirit restored it. In terms of their role distinctions, God the Father is the architect, God the Son was the construction engineer, and the Holy Spirit is the operational supervisor. There are clear role distinctions. God the Father sent the Son. God the Father and God the, the Son both sent God the Holy Spirit so that there are role distinctions and there are authority relationships within the Godhead. So that means that the principle is established that authority orientation is basic to orientation to life and reality. And if you're not oriented to, to authority and the authorities in your life, and you're not oriented to reality, you're divorced from reality, and to the degree that you're divorced from reality, you're going to end up as a neurotic and psychotic believer, and you're going to end up in tremendous failure both in, in life and in the spiritual life. There are also role distinctions in the Trinity related to salvation. God the Father designed it. God the Son did all the work. In fact, while He's hanging on the cross... Remember, he's on the cross. He's the perfect God-man. He is undiminished deity united with perfect humanity. He has never sinned in his life. And yet, as a second person of the Trinity on the cross, fulfilling his role as the Savior, God the Father judges him. He functions in the role of judge. And, and the Lord Jesus Christ, in his role as our substitute, functions in the role as, of a sinner... And, and a criminal, and those sins are imputed to him, and he is judged for those sins. Now, in arrogance, he could say, now wait a minute, I'm equal to you, you have no right to judge me. What would happen? There would be no salvation. His authority orientation recognizes role distinctions. Which brings us to the third point, therefore, authority structures are not in themselves related to sin, are tainted by sin, but are intrinsically good. Intrinsically good. Authority structures are not in themselves related to sin or tainted by sin, but are intrinsically good. Authority is an intrinsically good concept. It might be abused by people, it might be distorted by sinful creatures. There may be sinful people who distort, abuse, and uh, misuse their authority. But authority itself is not inherently wrong or related to sin in the universe. I've seen this bumper sticker on the back of cars that says, Question Authority. That's the kind of, of erroneous garbage that came out of the baby boom generation mostly because the World War II generation did not instill authority orientation into their children. They failed at that point. They did a great job coming out of the Depression and winning World War II, but they did a miserable job because they bought into all the neurotic, psychotic concepts of Spock, Dr. Benjamin Spock. 
And there was an interesting uh, book review in the New York Times recently of a new biography on uh, Benjamin Spock. And this guy was as neurotic and psychotic as they come. And what his parents did to him in terms of turning him inside out mentally is, is just almost, I hate the term mental abuse or emotional abuse, but if there ever was, he got it. I mean, they just drilled all kinds of erroneous stuff. This guy was so mixed up and nuttier than a fruitcake. And he was trying to figure out what made life work. And so he goes into psychology and everything else and, and communicates this to, to uh, the whole, a whole generation and how to raise your children. And the guy didn't have a clue about reality. Had no concept of authority orientation and communicated that to an entire generation so that this generation grew up with very little concept of authority orientation and consequently we're in a lot of the, the mess that we're in today because of the, the decisions that that generation uh, foisted on their society and their parents just went right along with it and never, uh, never instilled that discipline. Which brings us <clears throat> to point four. Orientation to authority is learned primarily during the first six to eight years in life. Authority orientation is learned primarily during the first six to eight years in life, which puts a tremendous burden of responsibility on parents that your job is to instill authority orientation because when that precious little child of yours is born, they are a sin nature encapsulated in a body. And that sin nature is driven by lust patterns. And the basic factor there is the big I. I want, I want, I want. Do it my way. And the only thing that's going to control that self-centered arrogance that is endemic to the very nature of the sin nature is for you to instill in them a sense of discipline and control on that. And that comes through authority orientation. They must recognize the, all sorts of authorities or they will constantly struggle throughout their life with the whole problem of authority orientation. And if you don't get this down, then you're always going to have trouble. Now, don't forget, I'm going to give you a way out here, don't forget the fact that every child has volition. In fact, you ought to be teaching this to your children. They have positive volition, that's their yes button, and they have negative volition, and that's their no button. And you need to be teaching this from the time they're able to communicate any basic concepts, and that whenever they're grumpy or they're, they're uh, disobedient, they're, they're on, operating on their no button, and the only way to get back over here, essentially, is rebound. And you can start teaching these spiritual principles to those kids from the moment they're coming out of diapers. And they can learn it, and they can absorb it, and we ought to be teaching this uh, down there in Sunday school to these kids uh, over and over again and instill these concepts into them because this teaches the whole issue of responsibility and, that, and makes them aware that whatever it is they're doing is the consequence of their volition. They're not just being grumpy because I feel grumpy today and I woke up on the wrong side of the bed. But you have a choice. You're choosing to be the way you are and it emphasizes over and over again that they make these choices. See, one of the problems is, in our culture, we've gotten away from personal responsibility and volition and the emphasis on individual responsibility for volitional choices. So we make all kinds of choices, and we go through life, and then life falls apart, and we go, how did that happen? How come my life's a mess? Well, I don't remember making those choices. Well, we're not volitionally conscious. 
We need to be volitionally conscious. We need to be aware that our life is the product of the decisions that we make. The reason you are what you are today is because of all the decisions you've been making since you came out of the womb. Now, for probably the first eight or ten years of your life, you are volitionally unconscious. But that doesn't mean you are volitionally inactive. You are making thousands and thousands of decisions that would probably, some of which are going to haunt you for the remainder of your days. But you made those decisions. You wanted to do it and you did it. Whether you're aware of it or not is irrelevant. That's the basic principle of any good system of jurisprudence. Ignorance of the law is no excuse for violation of the law. So people who go along and they say, well, I wasn't aware I made that choice. Well, that's not the issue. You wanted to do it and you did it. You might not have been aware of the consequences. You might not have been volitionally conscious at the time or aware that you were making that decision, but you wanted to do it and you did it. That's why insanity should never be a legal defense for anything. Because insanity, neurosis, nobody's born neurotic and psychotic. That's a result of hundreds of thousands of bad decisions that that person makes throughout the course of their life. They wanted to do it and they did it, so that ended up with this result. Then they wanted to do this and they did it, and that ended up with the next result. And it accumulates, it builds up over time, and the result is that now they're neurotic and they're psychotic and they go off and they kill somebody. They can't control their emotions, so they go kill somebody. And uh, it's not because they're crazy. It's that they've made a, a multitude of bad decisions over the course of their life. And, um, and that's the result of it. So they need to be executed if they commit a capital crime. And execution should be immediate. That's what the Scripture teaches. Now, as parents, your responsibility is to drill this into your kids. And you have to do that at times through the use of corporal punishment. That means you have to spank them. If you do not believe in that, then you're in violation of God's Word, and you're going to raise a child that is not oriented to authority, and their life is going to be pretty difficult because you haven't instilled those principles in it. There are times, I think, when parental failure does rear its ugly head in the lives of their children. That doesn't mean that, that the children should come back and then blame the parents. That's absurd. They still make their volitional choices. They, there are many children who grow up in homes that, that lack all kinds of discipline, and yet those children learn authority orientation, and they align themselves to authority orientation, and their successes in life inspire the failures of their parents. Parental failure does not guarantee child failure. That's why there's no absolute cause and effect there, so no child can come back or should ever come back and blame their parents. And all this stuff in modern psychology, where you can come back and blame your parents for all your troubles, is terrible. It's absurd, and, and, and no believer should ever get caught up in that. You have to take personal responsibility for the decisions you make. But parents have to instill authority orientation into their children. Which brings us to point five. Failure to orient to the spheres of authority in your life will mean that you will be dominated by arrogance and your sin nature, and you will be a failure in life and in the spiritual life. And you will probably go out eventually under the sin unto death. If you fail to orient to the spheres of authority in your life, then you, that's a guaranteed recipe, a guaranteed formula for failure in life. You have to be oriented to authority. That doesn't mean that that authority is always right. In fact, that authority can be wrong most of the time. But the issue is that that's the authority that God has established over you, 
And so you have to be responsive to that in the correct manner. Two wrongs never make a right. Just because they're wrong doesn't justify you in violating their authority, except in some rather unusual and very, very exceptional situations. Point number six, God has established two spheres of authority. These two spheres of authority are the secular sphere and the spiritual sphere. In terms of the secular sphere, which brings us to point number seven, there are five divine institutions which represent establishment truth. Establishment truth are principles related to both believers and unbelievers. They are principles that are established by God for the stability and the success of the human race, irregardless of their spiritual status. This includes morality. Morality is for both believers and unbelievers. That's part of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments has nothing to do with spirituality and everything to do with the basic law of the land for Israel, which included both believers and unbelievers. So the Ten Commandments has nothing to do with salvation and nothing to do with the spiritual life. We're going to see that in the book of Galatians. But it has everything to do with establishment truth, with morality, and with providing the basis for freedom within a nation. So within the basis of establishment truth, you have the first divine institution, which is individual responsibility. Individual responsibility has as its authority the individual's volition. Second, you have the uh, divine institution of marriage. Marriage is designed by God to be between one man and one woman. Marriage has an established authority structure where the husband is the authority. Now, this guy may be a real loser, but that has nothing to do with the principle that God has established him as the authority in the marriage. Then you have the family. Family structure, the parents. Honor your mother and father if they do a good job. No, that's not what it says. It says, honor your mother and father, period. Good, bad, indifferent, wonderful, lousy, scummy, whatever they are, they're your parents. Honor your parents. They're the authority. Fourth, is human government, which is established with the Noahic Covenant. Ultimate authority there is whatever the legislated authorities are. Whether you're talking about an oligarchy or a monarchy, a dictatorship, a democracy, a republic, whatever the governing, governing form is, a legislated governing form, that's the authority structure. Then the last is national division. National division is very important. God established this at the Tower of Babel. And as far as I can determine at this point, God's the ultimate authority there because when man starts to violate that authority structure through internationalism, then God's the one who steps in and performs the corrective discipline. So you have these various authorities in life that must be followed if you're to have success, and that's designed for believer or unbeliever. Then you come to, we come to the spiritual realm. Spiritual realm, you have the authority of the Scripture. The Word of God is our absolute and final authority. 
doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't matter what some other pastor says. It doesn't matter what some theologian says. What matters is what the Word of God says. Paul established that principle when he had gone to the church at Berea, and afterward he praised them because they searched the Scriptures daily to make sure that what he said was scriptural. Now, this is the Apostle Paul, so he recognizes the fact that even as a human, he can make mistakes, and it was good for them to establish and to evaluate what he taught in light of the Scriptures. The Scriptures are the final authority. Secondly, we have in the early church the apostolic authority. Apostles were given a temporary spiritual gift for the purpose of leadership in the early church and communication of doctrine. Let's review our definition of an apostle. An apostle is not a gift to be a missionary. That's what a lot of people think. I don't know. I know this gets askew. Try to keep things somewhat. There we go. I'm real clumsy on this, aren't I? Okay. An apostle is a man in the New Testament officially commissioned by an authorizing agent. That's the general definition. And given the authority to perform a a task. What matters for an apostle is who is the commissioning agent? Who assigns the task? Two categories exist. The unique spiritual gift given to only 12 men. 11 of the original disciples, excluding Judas Iscariot and later the Apostle Paul. These men were commissioned personally by the Lord Jesus Christ. That is one of the requirements for being an apostle, was that personal commission by the Lord Jesus Christ, resurrected Lord Jesus Christ, and given the authority to communicate the gospel and church-age doctrine throughout the world, to lead the incipient church, that's the beginning church, the infant church, to lead the incipient church and to write the canonical books of the New Testament. They were temporarily empowered to perform miracles and healings to authenticate their mission. That was their calling card. That that provided their credentials. Often a person in authority is called upon to establish his credentials. That's why it's important for men who have the gift of pastor-teacher to go through seminary and to get those academic credentials why it's important for men who have the gift of spirit, uh, the spiritual gift of pastor teacher to be ordained as it provides them with the credentials from a local church that establishes um, the fact that they have been evaluated by a, a board and they, their doctrine is accurate and therefore they can uh, go forward and they have the training and they can go forward uh, in their gift. Now I am a firm believer that if someone has the gift of pastor-teacher, they need to do everything they can to advance their training. Uh, As a historian, one of the valuable things that made an incredible difference in the founding and development of this uh, country was the Presbyterian Church and the Puritan Church. Now, there are a lot of bad things that are said that are inaccurate about the Puritans and the Presbyterians, but they, they were... In, in light of all the doctrine and doctrinal people along the way who, who really understood things, and the Puritans came along and they taught a lot of wonderful doctrines and got people squared away again on the Bible and establishment truth. 
and a lot of, a lot of principles uh, like that. And one of the things that they emphasized was a well-trained and well-educated clergy. So that when you had men coming in the early stages of this country, I think like the first hundred or so universities established in this country were all established and founded for the purpose of training men for the gospel ministry. Harvard, Yale, Princeton, Dartmouth was uh, Moore's school for training missionaries to the Indians. The old things are passed away. Behold, new things have come. Now all, things, all these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us, that is all believers, the ministry of reconciliation. That's presenting the gospel to unbelievers. Namely, that God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed to us, to us, the word of reconciliation. God will save people, but he has ordained the end as well as the means, and the means is through the gospel. If you do not give people the gospel, communicate it, then they will not know. How can anyone uh, believe unless they hear? Faith cometh by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, as though God were entreating through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. So we are ambassadors for the Lord Jesus Christ. Point number seven. The church age believer has two areas of responsibility in witnessing for life. One is through your life, how you live your life. Second Corinthians 3.3, 3, the, uh, the Apostle Paul says, being manifested that you are, that is your life, is a letter of Christ cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. But the witness of the life may just get somebody's attention. It doesn't give them any specific data on how to be saved. So you can't just rely on the fact that I'm going to live my life. I've heard so many Christians say this. I'm going to live my life in such a way that people will see the difference. But a nonverbal expression cannot get the gospel to people. It will not get them saved. There must be a verbal witness, the witness of words. You must communicate that salvation is by faith alone in Christ alone. There's no reason to be afraid. Point number eight is always remember that the Holy Spirit is a sovereign executive of witnessing. The issue is not how much you know, not how intelligent you are, not how to handle all the objections of the unbeliever. That's not the point. The point is if you explain the gospel clearly and you use the Word of God, we know that Scripture says that the Word of God will not return to him void. He will use it to accomplish whatever purposes he desires and the Holy Spirit is the one who makes the gospel clear. It's your job to present the gospel, it's the Holy Spirit's job to make it clear so the unbeliever can understand it. And point number nine, don't get sidetracked by false issues. This is, always happens. You get in a discussion, next thing you know you're in an argument. Don't let somebody draw you into an argument. Don't let somebody uh, make sin the issue. Sin isn't the issue. Christ paid for sin. The issue is what do you think about Jesus Christ? Don't get into an argument because you're not going to convince somebody into the heaven. Into heaven. That's not the issue. The issue is not to get into some kind of an ego contest. The issue is to present the issue. Don't, uh, uh, don't get involved and caught up in false issues like taboos or personal opinions or political issues or legalistic standards or changing lifestyle or a person's lifestyle or anything like that because they're a spiritually dead unbeliever. They can't understand doctrine. So don't get caught up in this thing where you're arguing doctrine when they have no frame of reference for it. That's absurd. A lot of believers do that. They start getting off into all these other issues when that person has no, uh, n n is not spiritually reborn, has no 
framework for understanding doctrine. And ten, memorize some verses that you can use, their, their references and the verses, so that you can go open the Bible. And, and I remember in high school, sitting down with a girl who just kept talking about, you have to be good. You have, I can't understand how God could let a murderer get into heaven. And a friend of mine and I sat there and we opened up our, our, our New Testament and we said, read Ephesians 2, 8, 9. Read it again. What does it say? Not by, not, uh, for, we're saved, for by grace we're saved through faith, not of works. What does that mean? Go over it again. Go to Titus 3, 5. Not by works of righteousness. What does that say? What does that mean? We never got her there. She never got, got it accepted Christ. But we just kept going over and over again. Look at the Scriptures. Tell me what that means. Use the Scripture. The Scripture is the power of God. It is our responsibility as believers to communicate the gospel to a lost and dying world without hope and without eternal life. It is not our responsibility to convince them of the truth. That's the Holy Spirit's role. It's not our responsibility to answer all their objections and arguments. Many of those questions may not be resolved until they've been a believer for many years. It's our task, it's our responsibility to communicate the gospel clearly to everyone in our context. I remember a dear, dear woman who just went to be with the Lord. I think she was 93 or 94 years old. And, and we all knew her as Granny. And Granny witnessed to anybody and everybody who came in her context. I mean, she would go into a store and she would talk to the salesperson or at a restaurant talk to and she would always say, have you made the most important decision in your life? Well, well, what is that decision? You need to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ as your personal Savior. Because He died on the cross for you. I mean, she never met a person that she would not ask them if they had made the most important decision in their life. Now, that's what we need to be doing. We need to make sure that the people around us, anybody we come in contact with, has made the most important decision. We've got tracks out here. Matter of Life and Death is one of a great track to give people. makes the gospel very clear. You go places. Give it to people. Uh, everywhere you go, have you made the most important decision in your life? That's one way of doing it. There are many other methods. But the more you do it, the easier it becomes, and the more you become flexible, and you're able to do that. Well, we need to close this morning because it's time for com- our communion service. So let's bow our heads together with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. It's an opportunity for anyone here who has never made the most important decision in their life to make it right now. The issue is Jesus Christ. It's not your sin. It's not your lifestyle. It's not what you've done or what you haven't done. The issue is faith alone and Christ alone. Jesus Christ did it all. That's the point of the Gospel. He paid the price. Paid in full. Tetelestai. That's the last thing He said on the cross. It is over. It's paid for. It's paid in full. Jesus paid it all. All you have to do is accept it. In the silence of your own soul, directly to God the Father, forming words in thought alone, you can say, Father, I believe Jesus Christ died for my sins. That's all that's necessary. And you have eternal life. Father, we thank you for this time together in your word, for the clarity of the gospel, for our, our position in your family, our role as ambassadors, and just pray that we would be uh, willing, courageous, to apply these principles in our lives, to go forth as objective witnesses of what your word says about salvation and our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.